Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome back to TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. I'm Leslie Goldberg, West Coast TV editor, and I'm joined by my friend, co-host, and THR's chief TV critic, Mr. Daniel Feinberg. Dan, what's shaking? How you doing? We've successfully made it through a week of baseball season, and despite the best efforts of the Miami Marlins, it continues to happen. Yeah, MLB is a mess. The two Phillies uh, uh, front office staff came back uh, COVID positive today. Joe Kelly got got suspended for way more games than he should have for not throwing at a, at a, a cheating Astro. Yeah, I have a lot of feelings on that, but that's for social media. And as we are recording this tonight, basketball is also coming back. So uh, let me just tell you, life is going to be totally normal by the time we record our next podcast. Totally sure. normal, Leslie. Sure. Sure, Dan. Well, with all that out of the way, let's dive into this week's headlines. Leading off, Little Fires Everywhere Emmy nominee Carrie Washington has extended her overall deal with producers ABC Studios. Over at Stars, Pea Valley has earned an early second season renewal. And for more about the breakout hit of the summer, you should check out episode 78 from July 17th for our deep dive with creator Katori Hall. Over at Netflix, the streaming giant has greenlit the Witcher prequel Blood Origin and renewed YA drama Outer Banks for a second season. In development news, Succession executive producer Adam McKay is developing a COVID-19 vaccine drama at HBO because he's developing almost literally everything at HBO. Goodness gracious. Let the story play out, Adam. Over at Apple, Central Park has tapped Hamilton grad Emmy Raver Lapman to replace Kristen Bell as the voice of Molly in the animated series. Elsewhere at Apple, Oprah Winfrey will discuss race in America with a new Apple series called The Oprah Conversation. And wrapping up this week's headlines, The Walking Dead Season 11 has been delayed from its planned October launch. Instead, AMC has ordered six more episodes that they are tacking on to Season 10, with those expected to bow in early 2021. And that information broke somewhat adjacent to Comic-Con, which kind of took place last week, and that is the only mention we're making of it, so that tells you all you need to know about Comic-Con at home. Well, with all that out of the way, let's dive into this week's top five. Number one. Leading off the week, the nominees for the 72nd Annual Emmy Awards have been revealed. HBO's Watchmen, to little surprise, was the most nominated program of the year with 26. The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel came in second with 20, while Ozark and Succession tied for third. But to me, anyway, the bigger story of the year may be that HBO, for the second time in 21 years, 
did not lead the nominees. Instead, Netflix, for the second time in the streamer's history, led the pack with a whopping 160 total Emmy nominations, a new Emmy record, and breaking HBO's previous mark of 137 from last year. And while Netflix was up dramatically from its haul of 118 last year, HBO dropped sharply to 107 without Game of Thrones and Veep. And an interesting side note to that, if you want to crunch the numbers, which our colleague Mikey O'Connell did, Netflix had a total of 51 projects nominated, while HBO had a better ratio of seeing 21 shows nominated. So when you break it all down, HBO averaged 5.1 noms per project, while Netflix averaged 3.1. Dan, that's a lot of math. I wasn't expecting that the segment to go there, but it's an interesting stat nonetheless. It, it is. It, it reflects two very, very different business models than HBO as HBO has constantly tried to emphasize in recent months, you know, in similar conversations, HBO is not really in the volume play business. They remain in the prestige play business, which will lead to something like that. Whereas Netflix puts on a lot of shows that aren't really going to get Emmy nominations. No offense, Witcher, you probably should have been nominated for toss a coin to your Witcher, but oh well, other than that. Yeah, so so it's not it's not shocking. Um, and also, as I continue to emphasize, Netflix has only barely begun to get into certain categories, like the original movie category, which is a vestigial category that really does not need to exist anymore. Netflix has all of these movies and Netflix, because they want to be cool, they want their original movies to compete for Oscars, but all they would have to do was decide that a few more of them were competing for Emmys and there would be another category where they'd get people into play, you know, for evidence of how something like that might work. You need look no further than our favorite streaming service, Quibi, where uh, the good people of Quibi got to celebrate on Emmy morning by the fact that they were basically competing in categories no one else was competing in. And so Quibi got a lot of acting nominations this year because they're in categories no one else is in. But all Netflix would have to do was decide it wanted to do a couple short programs, you know, break a few episodes of things off into tinier bites, quick bites, as it were. Yeah. So everyone be more like Quibi, I say. And I also appreciate you not correcting me a single time there, Leslie. <laughs> no, I will not. But we should note that Quibi scored 10 nominees and it was one of three new streaming services to actually uh, be not eligible for, for Emmy nominations this year, who all kind of performed probably better than I think anyone anticipated. Disney Plus had 19, including a Best Drama Series nomination for The Mandalorian. And Apple had 18 uh, nominations, including uh, Best Actress for Jennifer Aniston, among others. So. But on the other hand, Apple could not get a drama series nomination for The Morning Show. And as you mentioned, The Mandalorian did for Disney Plus, which is a little peculiar. I mean, my dream list would have neither of those two shows in that category. But if you asked me which one was more likely, I definitely would have said it was Morning Show. But there you go. Uh the the Emmy nominations will always give you 100 things to be happy about and you know, maybe a hundred things to get pissed off about. I would say this year's ratio was probably a little bit more towards the ticked off side for me, at least, because uh, we talked a couple weeks ago about the expanding nominees in categories and what that could or couldn't mean. You know, if it if it allowed a few smaller shows to get in and, and to sneak in and to get recognition, they wouldn't have gotten otherwise, you know, great. But if it just ended up being kind of same old, same old, 
it wouldn't be good. I don't know that it was exactly same old, same old, like Modern Family did not sneak into the comedy series category, which I thought it might. For its final season, yeah. But ultimately, if expanding the category allowed us to get a little indie sleeper like the Mandalorian into a series category, I'm not 100% sure it had the desired impact. And a lot of the things that I would normally point to as things that I assume probably would have finished seventh or eighth in a five or six nominee field, a, a lot of things didn't get in. And so something like Ray Seahorn, who me and every critic like me has been saying for months, really, really, really needs an Emmy nomination for Better Call Saul. She didn't get one. And not only that, somehow the voters found a way to also snub Bob Odenkirk, which is completely and totally ridiculous. That That's just that's just an embarrassment and a sham. They ignored Jonathan Banks, who with Bagman had one of his best episodes ever. They ignored Vince Gilligan, who's a pretty big name. They didn't nominate him for directing Bagman. They didn't nominate him for writing or directing El Camino, the Breaking Bad movie. So there were there were a lot of things that had me scratching my head. A lot of shows that just got totally forgotten and ignored. Better things with zero nominations. That that is just so wrong. That is that is such a miss on every level, whether it's Pamela Adlon acting, Pamela Adlon directing, Pamela Adlon writing, people who aren't Pamela Adlon doing things on the show. Like that that show should have 10 to 15 nominations every year as opposed to zero. And, you know, sure, I give up on things like Brockmire. Brockmire was never going to get a nomination. Uh, David Makes Man was never going to get a nomination. But some of these shows really could as something like The Great not getting a nomination for Elle Fanning. That that to me is is a, a major miss and not getting a comedy series nomination. That to me is a miss. Lots, lots of things like that. I would say I was probably, I don't know, 60, 40 disgruntled this year, which is not my ideal percentage when it comes to Emmy nominations. <laughs> OK, so we've heard about the disgruntled part. So what Let's flip the coin. What's on the good side, Dan? Rami got a, an acting nomination. Rami got an acting nomination and got a directing nomination for the uh, Mia Khalifa episode, which was probably my favorite of last season. So that makes me happy on on several levels. I was happy with all of the variety of nominations that Watchmen got. It was always going to get a lot of nominations, but I think it was a question of whether it was going to get... I don't know, 10 to 12 and a lot of the actors were going to left going to get left out or whether it was going to get 26 and everybody was going to get nominated. It was much closer to that, uh, though. Someone like Hong Chow certainly could have gotten a nomination and did not. So that's a minor pity. So I was happy with with that. Um, I'm trying to think of what else amused me about the nominations. There were a lot of things where the voters could have gone out on limbs and they really didn't. I was happy with a lot of the supporting acting nominations for uh, for The Good Place. That's a show that, you know, final season got a little bump. Uh, Schitt's Creek, not a show I love as much as some people do. But to me, it always felt a little silly if you were going to nominate, say, only half of that ensemble and it was only going to be uh, Catherine O'Hara and Eugene Levy. Well, OK, so now the supporting actors who aren't really in any way supporting actors, they were basically leads this past season. But whatever uh that they got recognition is good there there were yeah, a lot the show of things. Got 15 nominations yeah for for a for a little show on a network that decided it doesn't really want to do uh do scripted anymore that's a little that's a little funny and i wonder if pop is feeling like ooh, let's let's pour all of our money back into scripted again i bet yeah. you they're not uh, i bet you they're not either 
Yeah, but like moving over to pop didn't in any way benefit uh, one day at a time, which I think got a uh, an editing nomination. It got it got some tech nomination, which was fine. But once again, no Rita Moreno, no Justina Machado. And those are two significant absences, given that many, many people looked over the Emmy rules and went, OK, there's a large increase in nominees of color, specifically a large increase in black nominees, which is great and which is progress. But man, there weren't many Latinx nominees. And boy, oh boy, Justina Machado and, and Rita Moreno are really easy nominees that the Emmy voters keep missing every single year. <laughs> yeah, Dan. I mean, what about um, in terms of diversity and inclusion? What did you think of, of the field this year? I think that there was clear progress and the question of whether it's progress because the contenders were better or progress because there was more consciousness and awareness of needing to make progress is always a question so you know it's it's great if you're going to have such a high percentage of the nominees be african-american that's fantastic and looking over the nominees they're all deserving so that's not in any way a problem but then to have no awareness whatsoever of a show like David McMahon, to mention that show again, it it makes it a little bit of a disappointment. I think if you look at the another thing that we talk about constantly is how many female directors were recognized. The numbers were really up this year. And uh, I think that's obviously good. It's obviously progress. But once again, the numbers were up this year. And yet Pamela Adlon, who for my money is the best director in the comedy space of any gender period, once again, doesn't get nominated, it it becomes an irksome thing because I don't know what those people are watching in some cases. And so that frustrates me. But you could you could definitely see that there was some consciousness in the voting this year. But the consciousness also reflects some consciousness among executives that there needed to be movement this year. There needed to be things getting better. And yet once again, other than Billy Porter, None of the supporting actors from Pose get acting nominations. You know, MJ Rodriguez, India Moore, both of them totally could have been in a uh, drama actor's field. And, uh, you know, they they just don't get the conversation. And that's too bad because they are both great actresses to begin with and they're getting better. And so you want you want people you want people to be able to go, okay. There's improvement there. These are these are two actresses who are not getting opportunities previously, who had never done this before. Now they're getting these opportunities and they're improving. Come on, give them some love. And yeah, yeah. yeah. MJ Rodriguez had an amazing story in post season two. But uh, yeah, I, I digress. Um, but yeah, I mean, do you have anything else to say on, on the Emmys, Dan, on the actual nominees? Is there a, a, one narrative that you're really looking forward to, to seeing in, in terms of how the winners shake out? I think it's going to be interesting to see. I think probably the num- the volume of nominations for Watchmen suggests that that one's probably not a sure thing, but it feels fairly likely. Not that there aren't other good contenders, but like something like Unbelievable, which I normally would have thought was a real possibility there. The lack of nominations for Caitlin Deaver and Merritt Weaver, which is just dumb. There's there's no other way for me to describe it. I think that to some degree, Netflix screwed up the categorization for the actors. And I've said this since the Golden Globes when I didn't understand what Caitlin Deaver and Merritt Weaver were doing as leads, but Tony Collette is supporting. Uh, taking 
a step back further, I don't think there's any question that Merritt Weaver should have been solo among the leads and Caitlin Deaver and Tony Collette should have both been supporting. And I think if they had done that, probably they all would have been nominated. So that so that is a mystery. But so if you assume Watchmen's going to win the limited stuff, I'm still not sure what's happening on drama and comedy is succession going to just pick up where Game of Thrones left off. It absolutely could. Is this a valedictory year for Schitt's Creek? So those so the narratives are the, are the big ones. It's there are a couple really wide open races. So that's the narrative I'm looking for. Word two, but also the biggest narrative of all. And it's going to be our next topic is what the Emmy's actually going to look like. That is what Dan would call a transition. Number two. Up second, and this news should come as no surprise, the Emmy Awards telecast scheduled for September 20th will be done virtually. With the field now set, Emmy producers, including host Jimmy Kimmel, informed nominees this week that they will be filmed remotely using different technologies to ensure the telecast has a better look than the early Zoom specials that we've seen from quarantine. Dan, you know, look, the ceremony was supposed to happen in L.A. The numbers as we are recording the show are trending very much the wrong way in L.A. County. There will be no red carpet, as you know, to no surprise there either. But what, what do you think of this decision? I mean, obviously, it was a no brainer, but. Yeah, that's that's the easiest thing. There were there were some questions if they were going to look for a bizarro way of handling it, like holding the Emmys at. Dodger Stadium or the Hollywood Bowl with people sitting with every group of people sitting 15 feet away from each other. Something ridiculous like that. It was it was never going to happen. It was never going to work. This was always what it was going to be. So now we're going to have to see what it actually looks and feels like. Uh, The note that Jimmy Kimmel and the producers sent to the nominees said that there was not going to be a a formal dress code, but they wanted people to put in some effort. But he also jokingly said that if you were in a place where the Emmys were taking place at like three in the morning, you could feel free to wear designer pajamas. So I, I will be amused to see how they handle that. And it's, it's look, it's too bad because everybody from the comfort of their couches enjoys the process of Emmy day and watching the red carpet and seeing people get prettied up. I'm sure that if you were to catch most of the actors in their more candid moments, they would tell you, actually, I'm perfectly happy not to have to starve myself for a week, squish into a dress. The Emmys always take place on one of the hottest weekends of the year in Los Angeles. So you go somewhere and you stand with the sun beating down on you, waiting to answer the same question 85 times, having not eaten for a week. I'm sure most actors, if you got them a little bit drunk, would tell you, thank God we don't have to do that but I'm going to miss it at home. And why isn't anyone thinking about me? Uh, so <laughs> there, there are lots of ways they can handle it. And I think there are plenty of ways that they can do a perfectly entertaining telecast. I will be mostly curious how they handle acceptance speeches, whether they're going to let the winners know beforehand and tape acceptance speeches and whether they're going to be able to keep that quiet. There, there are a lot of logistical things that are way, way, way beyond my pay grade. And I will just be curious to see what it looks like. Yeah, there's a lot of details still to left to be worked out, as Dan noted. But I mean, there have to be some pre-taped bits here, right? They have to get Tina and Amy back together to do something, right? I mean, what do you want to see from this ceremony? 
I I want to see funny things. That's that's what I want to see. I want to see funny things, but I also will will we're all going to need to see some sort of awareness of the moment and acknowledging the moment, whether it's specifically the COVID of it all, whether it's the Black Lives Matter of it all. None of that can be ignored. None of it should be ignored. None of it will be ignored. You know, no. Whether one... it's the presidential election that will be held, you know, what a month and a half later. I assume that largely will be ignored is the is the honest truth. I mean, someone will mention it in their in a speech or whatever. But I think there are enough kind of bringing the country together things. There's enough unity that can be reached for while still acknowledging the need for serious police reform nationwide, while acknowledging the heroism of the first responders, while acknowledging that some morons are still out there not wearing masks in public places in large groups. I think there are a lot of things that will be definitely acknowledged and uh, it's unavoidable, but I would also like for there to be some laughter. I, I hope that I hope that they find the right balance between the need to take the seriousness of the world serious and the need to acknowledge that it's really just a TV award show and someone should have some fun with it. So so no problem. That That's an easy balance to strike. So, you know, <laughs> go for it. <laughs> yeah, well, lots of lots to monitor as that story continues to develop. On to our next topic. And this one has nothing to do with Emmys. Woo-hoo. There's a major change over at AMC. Number three. Sarah Barnett, the president of AMC Entertainment Group and AMC Studios, will depart the cable network in September. In her place, Ed Carroll, who most recently served as chief, who most recently served as chief operating officer, will take on oversight of AMC, BBC America, IFC, Sundance TV, and the studio. So, Leslie, break it down for the kids. Why is this interesting news? Well, anytime you see a network executive, a se- one who's running a suite of networks like this, leave, it's there's more usually more to it. And in this case, to me, at least without knowing what Barnett is doing next, this is a move that that signals just how much basic cable has been impacted by the streaming wars. You know, we've talked about it on the show in the, in the past you know, few episodes about how USA and Sci-Fi and TNT and TBS and a, and a, and a slate of other basic cable networks have slowly retreated away from from scripted programming because it's impossible to compete. You know, you need, you know, it, it's like a vicious circle. You need Netflix to sign on as a co-producer so that they get the global rights so that you get the cash infusion to help make a premium or semi-premium show for cable. But then no one watches it. Everyone tunes in on Netflix. You have no back-end ownership because you've already sold the, 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 the rights to Netflix for a second window. And it's just impossible to cut through. I mean, that's what happened with a show like Dare Me, right? You, you know, a show that was very well received by critics. Nobody watched it. It sold to Netflix. They couldn't bring it back for a second season because the financials didn't work. But yeah, this is exactly what this is. You know, you know, Barnett, has been in that uh, in that top job since a 2018 restructuring that gave her oversight of AMC as well as BBC America, IFC, Sundance. She came in after Charlie Collier departed when he moved to Fox. But in addition to having having great taste, you know, never forget that Sarah Barnett is the executive who greenlit Killing Eve for BBC America way back when. It was Barnett who made some really compelling business decisions that included airing the Emmy-nominated drama on both 
AMC and BBC America in a bid to kind of expand its audience and say, hey, guys, over here, we have this great show. Look, let's put it on our bigger network of, of all of the suites and, and hope it cuts through in, in a better way. You know, she also turned AMC Studios into a content supplier for third party outlets, which is a key business move that in success will bring in revenue as basic cable continues to kind of retreat from the scripted space. So, yeah, this is basically, you know, an executive who's reading the tea leaves and saying, oh, shit. Basic cable is in trouble. And I think if you look over what Sarah Barnett, if we sort of give her credit for all decisions made in this space, because the buck stops with her, uh, has done in the past couple of years is having a definite consciousness of the variety in this space and trying to move things within it. You mentioned, obviously, the advantages to putting Killing Eve on both BBC America and AMC and the impact that that has had. She did something fairly comparable with the discovery of witches, which was Sundance now, I guess, and then moved over and aired in a second window on AMC. So there was a lot of trying to figure out how to use what is a series of somewhat niche brands. I think AMC is wider and BBC America is wider, but Sundance and IFC, et cetera, those are, those are smaller audience things, but finding ways to move the pieces around to get them exposed to the most eyeballs, which I think is what everybody is trying to do when they have multiple companies within the same umbrella company. So something like BET last week airing multiple episodes of The Good Fight, I think would be an example of someone else doing something comparable, which was trying to find a way to get eyeballs on resources that maybe people wouldn't know exist if they only focus on one piece of your overall corporate brand. And I think she understood that very well. And I think that anyone following her will have to understand it also. And I think that anyone at any comparable company with comparable assets will have to understand that the balance of streaming, cable, and just other random brands, it, it's what the game is at this point. It's not just the one thing that's happening on the one network. It's not just, oh, we have Walking Dead and Better Call Saul. That's it. It's a day. It, it has to be more complicated than that. And I think under Sarah Barnett's regime, she was making some uh, some use of the complications in interesting ways. Right. But this is also AMC that, you know, there's been rumors that there may be some spoiler alert streaming service of their own to launch because you know obviously the cable bundle is going away and now eventually you're going to need a streaming bundle for all of these these different ser paid services you know but i think that that could be a big part of of what the problem here is is you know and why she left is because this is a business model that that no longer works in this ecosystem and i think the best example of that is fx you know this is a network that is beloved by critics but you know a lot of people see john langraff he's his nickname in the industry is the mayor of television for you know he's considered one of the most smart and savvy executives and a lot of his original series are moving to a tab on hulu called FX on Hulu that aren't and they're not going to air on the linear network. Mrs. America, you know, devs was, you know, among them. And you've got Why the Last Man Standing also going to FX on Hulu. You know, I think these this is where the industry is going. Streaming is the number one priority. Basic cable, second broadcast. I don't even know where. So and obviously broadcast is a different model, but that's a whole other ball of wax. But yeah. So why did Sarah Barnett leave? This is we'll see what her next gig is. But, you know, we haven't heard what, what's coming up for her, but she's a talented and smart executive with good taste. I wouldn't be surprised to see her land somewhere big. Well, that takes us to our showrunner spotlight segment. 
Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Number four. Joining us this week is a showrunner behind ABC's Grey's Anatomy and its Firefighter spinoff, Station 19. Krista Vernoff's credits include Shameless, The Original Charmed, Beloved One and Done Wonderfalls, and Grey's spinoff, Private Practice. Vernoff had been with Grey's for its first eight seasons and returned in season 14 after Shonda Rhimes recruited her to serve as showrunner after her move to Netflix. Thanks for joining us, Krista. I'm so happy to be here. Thanks for having me. So, look, there's a lot going on in the industry right now. So let's get this one question out of the way first so we can move on and discuss some of the bigger, broader things that are going on. Justin Chambers left quietly and suddenly. What happened? And is there anything in hindsight that you would have done differently? Oh, my gosh. I haven't talked about that, and it's not my story to tell. I understand you guys have to ask, but... (laughs) Moving on, you know, Grey's Anatomy was the first show to shut down production during the pandemic. And now we're nearly five months later, which I'm, yeah, that hurts to say. You are now writing COVID-19 into scripts for season 17. Can you talk us through the conversation to do that? And was there ever a chance that you wouldn't do that? Absolutely. Uh, I spent the whole hiatus um, kicking it around and I came into the writer's room thinking that I had made the decision that we were not going to do it. Um, I I honestly think this is one of the keys to good show running is thinking you've made a decision and then letting your very smart writers convince you that you made the wrong decision. So I went into the writer's room and I, I made a speech about why I didn't think we should cover it, which was really just about fatigue. It was really about fatigue. I spent the hiatus watching Schitt's Creek and The Good Place and anything that made me, gave me a half an hour where I could just laugh or feel lighter or feel better about the world. And I, I feel like people need that so much. So my thought was, we're not going to do it. And very quickly, I think, uh, so I, I gave my speech and then I said, who wants to convince me I'm wrong? And Lynn Litt bravely raised her hand and had a really poignant pitch. And one by one, everyone else raised their hands and said, here's why we have to do it. And particularly persuasive were the were, was what we call team medical, Zoanne Clack and, and Nasser Al-Azari um, and, uh, and Michael um, Metzner were in the writer's room. And they really convinced me that that it would be irresponsible to not to be kind of the the biggest medical show and and ignore the biggest medical story of the century felt irresponsible really to them to the medical community and one by one we brought in our our doctor advisors who we meet with every year and we meet with sometimes we meet with some of the same people and then we bring in sort of new guests and it became clear that uh, these doctors are traumatized these doctors and these nurses are are traumatized. They are not trained or wired to hold the hands of dying people all day who are alone without their families. And they are not trained or wired to face as much um, the inability to 
there was so much unknown about this disease. There is still so much unknown about it. And they are really struggling. They're saying things like, you know, kids, their first year out of medical school are seeing more death in the first year than many doctors see in their in a decade. And it just felt like we had to tell this story. We have to we have to tell this story. Um, and so and so the conversation became, how do we tell this story, this very painful, brutal story that has hit our medical community so intensely and, as they keep saying, permanently changed, permanently changed medicine? How do we do that and create some escapism? How do we do that and create romance and comedy and joy and fun. That's the conversation. That's the challenge this season. And um, and the writers uh, have really risen risen to that challenge. And so I feel like we're going to be able to tell these stories and um, honor the heroes on the front lines and provide some escapism and some romance and some and some laughs. Well, obviously, without telling us specifically, is it is the coronavirus going to be treated as almost sort of in Buffy terms, kind of the big bad of the season, the thing that's sort of the pervasive thing that's always center? Or is it just going to be a thing that's going to be a day to day part of their lives, but they're still going to be dealing with the regular weekly dramas? I think it's it's sort of sits somewhere in the middle. I think depending on the episode, you know, there there's there's joy and fun to be had in people who are quarantining away from the hospital. Uh, you know, they're, they're, one of the things is, you know, these doctors, many of them aren't going home to their families. They're they're getting Airbnbs and living together. They don't want to expose their kids. There there's a lot uh, of story to tell that is sort of COVID related, but not about death and despair. Does that make sense? So it's it's, per, it's pervasive because it's pervasive. I don't know a person who works in the medical world who isn't affected, although some of them are affected. Interestingly, you know, I have a friend who uh, is a surgical nurse and he doesn't have work because all the surgeries for so many months were basically people were furloughed because uh, so many surgeries are not essential or or don't have to be done right now there there's a word that i'm not coming up with there there what's the word when you opt to have a surgery <laughs> Elective. Thank you. The elective Elective. surgeries have been suspended. And uh, and so there's a lot of story about our show is a surgical show. And there's a lot of surgeries that simply aren't happening or are being delayed or postponed. There are also a lot of medical stories to be told about the the fact is that death has uh, death has increased in this country, particularly because people were in in the early months and are still afraid to go to the doctor and afraid to go to the hospital. So when I I spoke with our team medical about 6 weeks into the into the pandemic and said like is there something you want me to tweet is there some message I can try to get out there and I thought it was going to be about covid or, or wear masks and it was come to the doctor at the first sign of stroke come to the doctor at the first sign of heart attack if you are having a gallbladder attack come to the doctor because people weren't going and they were dying from things like appendicitis they were trying to just wait it out treated on their own afraid to be exposed to covid so there's a lot of stories Yeah. One of the things that, you know, you mentioned there somehow is a debate about wearing masks in this landscape. And have you thought about if 
the uh, you know the these anti-maskers is that gonna is that a story that you're thinking about even addressing i know the show has been willing to kind of take on a, a political debate but I don't know that there's a political debate around this one. I don't think it's a political debate. I don't think it's I, I listen. Yes, it's a political. No, I'm not going to. I don't I don't have plans to take on anti-maskers, which feels to me like a strange and desperate distraction from the reality that's happening in this country. It, it's it's a desperate. It's like people are having cognitive dissonance. They don't want to believe that the country's in the shape that it's in. They don't want to believe this virus is real and killing as many people as it is, because that would mean that they're <laughs> because that would mean that so many uh, of the things that they hold dear, maybe politically, are, are are failing. I just, I'm so broken around the state of this country that it's hard for me to talk about. But no, I don't have a plan to take on anti-maskers. We're just going to wear masks. <laughs> you know, the fact is, we're so lucky as a medical show that we can have our actors in masks so much of the time and our extras in masks and our guest stars in masks organically because you can't be in a hospital without a mask right now. So that's actually going to, I think, allow us to get back to work safely maybe before some other shows can. Yeah. And of course, now that you're bringing that up, there is, you know, no clear path back to production right now. That's still something that is being worked out. All the safety protocols are being worked out between the guilds and the studios. And, you know, what's the latest that you're hearing about the efforts to kind of get cameras rolling again? I'm in Zoom calls all day, every day uh, on this subject. And I believe that the unions are close to, you know, uh, having a deal. I think, um, there are so many unions that have to work out terms. And what I'm hearing is that unlike other negotiations where it's like, we want this and profit and, you know, everybody's arguing about profit share and that kind of thing. These negotiations are we all want to keep everybody safe. How are we going to do that? What are we agreeing to? Um, and it's for every human being. It, it It's frightening. It's one of those things where I, I spend the day going like. I want to get people back to work. I want to get the crews paid and I don't want to risk anyone's life. It's really, it's, it's, uh, it's a complex thing, but there are a lot of great minds uh, on this. There are a lot of epidemiologists on this. We Each show has been assigned an epidemiologist. Each show, uh, each studio is, is coming up with safest systems possible and and everyone is sharing and everyone is talking to each other it's it's you know united against a common enemy like the pandemic it, it, it's like we're just we just all want to get back to work and we want to get everyone back to work so everyone's talking to everyone else and sharing best practices and uh coming up with systems and learning from other people's mistakes and uh learning from other people's better ideas and we're figuring it out well you mentioned that you guys have the excuse of being a medical show so people can be wearing masks, people can be constantly telling each other social distance, etc. But this is also a show where people have been prone to occasionally, you know, make out and whatnot. So does this all mean that you're going to have to sort of make the show more, let's say, more medical, less kissy in the closets? Like, is that going to have any impact on the stories that you actually are going to be able to tell? And is that a you know convenient thing to be able to make those changes? I, I For sure, intimacy is a question on every project that I'm working on. How are we doing intimacy? And um, 
there are a lot of solutions that people are pitching, and I don't know how viable those solutions are. You know, there there are there's visual effects, for example. There's there's do you shoot. Do you use, do you shoot one side? Obviously you, you can't have people making out, but there's a lot of, you know, there's been a lot of sex on Grey's Anatomy that doesn't involve kissing. There's a lot of sexy <laughs> lifting of clothes and pulling down of clothes and taking off of things and standing behind a person in a sexy way. And there's a lot of ways to skin that cat, so so to speak. <laughs> so, um, but, but how do we do this? is a big question. And and yes, I, I think it's safe to say there's going to be less kissing on TV across the board this year. I mean, as you're writing the scripts, what's been the hardest thing to kind of write around? Is this it? I, I, for sure, this is this is this is an ongoing. Yeah. Yes, this is it. This is it. How do you satisfy how do you satisfy the desire to create escapism through romance and titillation when you can't ask actors to stand face to face and put their lips together is 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 but you know it leads to it leads to some hr level conversations in the writers room like you're like okay let's stop talking like i don't know how to the, the details you start pitching details and you're like just just write it we'll figure it out we'll figure it out and if we can't figure it out <laughs> we, yeah. we'll skip it Especially because last season, you know, you get with the move back to 9 p.m., you, I think yeah, I remember you saying you wanted to bring the, you know, that 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 steamy romance back to Grey's from the, you know, from the early season. So, yeah, yeah, I did say that. And we did a little bit of it, but not a lot. But, you know, going forward, getting back to the, the production part of, of this all, you know, do you have a, a start date? Do you, and do you think, look, you've got a pilot in the works, too, which we can talk about a little in a little bit. But how likely is it that we'll see scripted series for broadcast resume production this year based on the latest conversations you're hearing? I think it's likely. I think we're very close to figuring it out. And there are tentative start dates. I will say that there have been other tentative start dates and that it's been pushed. But I I think we, it's like Debbie Allen said, we, we were in one of these endless meetings and Debbie finally said, if we don't start, if you don't start, you don't start. <laughs> you know, we've got to start. And um and do our best to keep everyone safe. And safety is is our number one concern. And in the beginning, it felt a little like the blind leading the blind. And now it feels like we've got more of the right elements in place, the right people to run a COVID department and to, you know, create safety. To They've got rules about what kind of masks are, you know, it's like triple layered masks on set and N95. Like everybody is going to be so protected. Um, one of the big conversations is, you know, actors have to be in masks all the time that they're not on camera. What does that mean for hair and makeup? You know, they've got to get in their hair and makeup and then put a mask on their face. And what's that going to look like by the time they get to camera? And then there's going to be touch-ups and, you know, but the hair and makeup people are going to be in, in goggles and masks and face shields. And for me, one of the big questions has been about mental health. What are we doing to protect everybody's mental health? Because this is a really, much like the doctors that we're talking to who are not trained uh, to deal with what they're dealing with, not much like that, because that's life and death and that's real. This is, but this, what's what's been real for the writer's rooms in all of the writer's rooms is that uh, is that we're struggling with depression. Many of us individually are struggling with um, Zoom screens all day in place of human contact with each other. Writers' rooms are such a sacred place. We there is so much joy and community, and 
And those rooms are so much why so many of us got into this business. There's just, we get to hang out together and we get to tell stories and we get to make each other laugh and we get to be the show and we get to be the audience and we get to, um, we get to be a community. And just as we're all suffering for a lack of our communities, the writer's rooms on Zoom just don't it just doesn't even come close to approximating the vibe, the feeling that 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 you get when you go to work with people you just think are hilarious and admire and have become friends with. And also because of Zoom, there are so many limitations to the, how long you can go before you start to get a headache and before your brain shuts down and stops being able to process words. So Whereas often on a often almost in in lieu of a break, you sit around and talk about each other's kids and eat snacks like you sort of stop talking story and you just start talking life. Now we work, we work for 45 minutes and then we take a 10 minute break because we have to come off the screen to rest our brains. And then we come back and we work for 45 minutes. So the community is a loss. And I have been feeling concerned when the crews come back that there's going to be a real, it's going to be a real shock to everyone's system. You know, I, I, we just had a meeting with the actors at station 19. They're the, they're just the happiest, huggiest, most communal group. And they're not going to be allowed to hug the crew. They're not going to be allowed to hug the crew. They're not even going to be allowed to be in six feet of most of the crew. That's psychologically going to be really hard on everybody. So the conversations, some of the conversations I've been having is like, prepare yourself because we've all been in this sort of in our homes. And now the feeling is going to be, oh my God, we get to come back to work, but it's going to be nothing like anything any of us is accustomed to. And we're already seeing that with the writers. Yeah. And you know, when we spoke in April, you know, you, you mentioned that, that one of the reasons that you guys were sh shut down so quickly was because so many members of the crew on Grey specifically are in a high risk category because they've been there since day one. I mean, this is a show that's nearing two decades. What sort of discussions have you had about crew members who maybe don't feel safe enough to return to work? And, and to that extent, to actors who don't feel safe. I mean, looking at Grey's, you know, Jim Pickens, the OG, 65, Ellen Pompeo, 50. You know, have you had any cast members or crew members opt out? And what's that conversation like? Um, I don't feel like I can speak publicly about uh, people's private reactions, but um, what I can say is, is that there have been a lot of conversations and a lot of like, what's, asks for clarifications. How are we handling this? How are we handling that? So it's just an ongoing discussion. But have you had, have you had folks opt out, whether it be crew or cast without naming them specifically? No, no. I think okay. people want to come back to work. Is there a part of the process that you have to keep an eye on to make sure that all of the scripts you're working on are more flexible so that they can be adapted as, I don't know, as real life situations change? If somebody does need to drop out for some reason, is there a different thing that you've had to do so that you can move pieces around more flexibly than you might otherwise? Yes. One of the, the really the primary thing that I've done is committing to have four scripts ready on each show on day one of prep. That was my idea, and I and I I think there are some other showrunners who will listen to me and hate me for that idea because that's a hard thing to do. But it's the thing that we that it, I came to understand that that's the essential. What you just described, Dan, is the essential ingredient. Is if an actor falls ill or a director falls ill, 
everybody who was working in the scene with that actor has to go home. Like, that's the reality. You've got to go home and wait for tests and quarantine for a certain number of days if you've been exposed. So what that meant to me is, wow, if I've got four actors in a scene together and one of them, and by the way, it's not, it's not just tests positive for COVID. It comes down with a fever or a headache or a sore throat. Things, it's, it's like at first sign of illness kind of thing. So what that means is, okay, now I don't have those four actors. I need other material to shoot. If I'm going to be responsible to production, I, we need to be able to jump to other material. And, and that means for me, also, if a director falls ill, you've got to be able to jump to another script. It's really complex, but, but I felt like the thing that we, the writers, could do to support moving this mountain is get really far ahead so that there's always material to jump to. Is that the sort of thing that gives line producers heart attacks, or are they actually kind of relieved that you're thinking that far ahead? Uh, they're thrilled. <laughs> and yes, it gives all of us heart attacks, but but, but the fact that, th that they won't have to shut down because certain people have to go home makes their jobs and the financial reality of the show way, way more feasible. And the other thing, of course, that we've been talking about now for the last few months is the, you know, the political unrest in the country, specifically the Black Lives Matter movement and the protests around that. Is that something you guys are weaving into the narrative? Obviously, it wouldn't fit in as a season long arc in the same way. But is it something that you're planning on addressing? It's something we've had a lot of conversations about in every room that I'm running. And I think it's really important that anti-racism is not just a part of the conversation, but it's a part of the world, part of the stories that we're telling. And you guys have so been, you know, in the past, you've tackled unconscious bias a few years ago. I mean, how big of an impact are you looking at in, in making this, the, the Black Lives Matter movement into, you know, Grays and, and 19? I think that we're, we're at an, we're at a, <laughs> this is a, this is a, this is a revolution. This is a massive, massive moment in our country. And I think it's, it's a massive story. And one of the things we're primarily focusing on at this moment on Grey's Anatomy is medical racism, systemic medical racism, because we're seeing so much of that illuminated through COVID. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's big and we are, and we in the, you know, station 19 is a first responder show. There's a huge amount of story with first responders and, and protests. And a lot of that cast are, are also black men. And there's a lot of story right now about the reality of how a black man is treated walking down the street in uh civvies versus how he's treated walking down the street in a firefighter's uniform. And, and I feel like it's our responsibility to just look at all of it. I, I'm not taking on any political issues. I'm, we're living in the world and in the America that we're living in right now. And, and, we're, and the stories are emerging from our lived lives and the lived lives of the actors. We have all the actors on every show come in and pitch ideas and stories. I feel like actors are an essential part of the creative process and an essential part of a, a, you know, working with your actors closely is an essential ingredient in a happy show, in a happy community. I, I've been working for 20 years and on the shows where the actors are not respected and, and included in the storytelling, um, you get factions, you get, you know, anger, you get a dysfunctional work environment. So, um, so we've all got 
we're, we're all, we've all got our stories, the actors and the writers, and we're building our world from all of it. Changing gears a little bit, we we mentioned earlier that you had a pilot, obviously, this development season, and you are a pilot season veteran. You've been through it many, many times. Obviously, this was a completely unprecedented spring for such things. What was the different experience like for you, and where does that pilot stand now in the grand scheme of things, I guess? That was a rough moment, Honestly, I love this pilot. I feel like it's so um, fun and important. It's fun and important, like like Aaron Brockovich, you know. And uh, we put together this tremendous cast, and we prepped for seven or eight weeks, and we shut down on the last day of prep. So we, we were we were shooting on the Monday, and we shut down on the the Friday, and it feels like. I love roller coasters and it feels like going to Magic Mountain and getting and waiting in the line for Goliath in like 99 degree heat and like your drink ran out and you waited and you waited and you walked and you walked and then you finally got on the roller coaster and then you did that slow tick tick terrifying sort of tick 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 up the top of the hill and you get stuck at the top. That's what it feels That's a like. Great and analogy. It's just <laughs> It's just fucked. It's just frustrating. But, you know, we've been, I I will say this, we've been so lucky that our pilot is still intact and waiting to be made. You know, we, we ABC is committed to Rebel and I uh, some other shows, I've got friends who, who got stuck at that same point on the roller coaster and got calls from networks saying, we're not going to make it or we're pushing it to next development season. So I'm grateful to still be, um, it, it, uh, still be on the ride, and uh, and I'm keeping in touch with the cast. And I had a writers' room, and and we delivered some scripts. And uh, we're in early pre-prep meetings right now, figuring out what how to make that show. And I I don't think I want to do COVID on that show because I it's not a medical show, and because. I don't know when it's going to air and you get into conversations of will it be dated? You know what I mean? Like we don't know what the realities of the world are going to be. So how do you do it? How do you do it? That's that's the we're working on it. I mean, is there a world where you're filming Rebel and Grey's Anatomy and 19 are both starting back up all at the same time where you have three things going on on day one when production does resume? Uh, no, no, there's a world where production resumes on Grayson Station 19 and we resume prep. We're going to have to reprep a lot of Rebel yeah. because we the locations, we've lost most of the locations. People don't want, the COVID has changed the landscape so utterly. So we have a tremendous cast intact, but like we lot, we're going to lose our DP because he's on another show. Like there's a lot of stuff, a lot of work we have to put back together. But so, so... I was going to have three things happening last year anyway. I'm I'm good. I'm good at multitasking. Uh, Yeah. uh, Yeah. Well, do you have any do you have any sense of how much the studios slash networks are prioritizing the return to those pilots? Because obviously returning to production on a show that that's keeping the lights on. You know, that's that's making sure that you can still have a financial revenue stream at your network, whereas pilots almost kind of to some degree feel like a luxury thing because you don't know with them. So do you have any sense of how they're looking at, at that at the new pipe stream pipeline? 
I I think that that's why the number of pilots were reduced, I think, at, at everywhere. Um, and I think that they, yes, the returning shows keep the lights on, but they've, but there aren't enough returning shows to fill all the hours of TV. So the hope is that we could make Rebel in time to, you know, test the pilot and order the series and make some episodes so that there could be some mid-season um, new shows. Uh, mid-season, though, meaning like March, which is when Grey's Anatomy premiered. So, <laughs> uh, True, but I think one of the things that I think Dan was inferring, too, is, you know, how much do you think the networks and the studios, not just ABC, where you have your deal, but beyond that, are maybe looking at this and saying, you know what, we can pick up a show straight to series based on the first three or five scripts that you've delivered. Like, we don't need to worry about just doing the pilot and then shutting it down and then reviewing it and then going back into production. But looking at this and saying, we're going to make this show and we want it for March. You know, and I think in a larger landscape, I mean, pilot season, if you're going to green light 60 pilots at the average cost of a million dollars for a drama pilot, that's a lot of money. Yeah. Yeah. I am not uh, at the table that makes those decisions. So and and one of the things I've I've learned in Hollywood is to not drive myself crazy wondering why those decisions that I'm not at the table get made the way they get made. What I know is that the people who sit at those tables are really smart people who worked really hard to get where they are and that they have job pressures and expectations and factors, X factors that I don't understand because I've not ever been in that job. And it, it's a thing that I learned, you know, when you come up as a writer, you think when I'm the showrunner, I'll never X, Y, Z, A, B, C, D, E, F, G. Like, I will never do those things. I'm going to be different. And then you become a showrunner and you're like, oh, <laughs> like, oh, my God. Oh, this job. It's so different and so much harder than I understood. And, oh, I get oh, I hated that person for all those years for doing that. And now I'm the person doing that. And I do I should I write them a note of apology and tell them how much I hated? Them? No, <laughs> I probably shouldn't do that. Like it's so what I learned from going on that journey is um, is to let go of trying to analyze or second guess the decisions that are being made. Uh, either above my head or in a different sort of faction of the world. I don't know what what Dana Walden and Bob Iger are dealing with right now. I can't imagine what they're dealing with, what pressures they're dealing with. So I, I don't second guess. I just do yeah. my part. I do my job. And I feel like with Rebel, I feel like we're doing it really well. We've put together a great cast and the writer's room was tremendous and the scripts are delightful. And I trust it's going it, to, it, I trust that you're going to see Rebel. I just don't know when. Right. You know, on top of everything else, these past few months, you've been without an agent as part of the WGA's battle with talent agencies over packaging fees and so much, so many other things, affiliated studios. Um, what strikes me is how incredible it is that these two stories, you know, you've got not just the, the battle with the talent agencies, but then you were going, you know, the, there was almost a writer's strike over the, the deals with the studios. So these two stories were the most important things in our industry just, you know, four and a half, five months ago. And now you're seeing major agencies like UTA most recently that signed the code of conduct. How much do you think the pandemic has really affected things like the battle over affiliate fees and, and even the, the WGA's new deal with the studios? You know, Leslie, I, I don't know because 
those are big questions and I am I am a writer and I am mostly a writer who just makes up fiction and and I manage uh, my shows but that is over that is the people who are in those negotiations and conversations god bless them because particularly on the guild side they're doing it like for free like that's a volunteer job um and they're busting their ass and I'm really busy running my shows and so I don't know what happened uh, in those rooms. And I don't know how much the pandemic has affected those conversations. I do know that uh, it was difficult being without an agent. And I will share with you that I did just sign with UTA. And I signed with uh, Larry Saltz and Lucinda Moorhead. And I'm really excited to have representation again. And I'm really excited that UTA made a deal with the WGA and, um, excited to support that. And I hope that the other agencies follow. Yeah, that's great. You know, and I, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask this because we end every conversation that we have. I think I ask you this exact same, same question, but you're in the second of a two year pickup for Grays. Has there been any conversation about how much more there is in the tank and has the, uh, the pandemic impacted those conversations at all? I think that really our focus right now is on can we make season 17? And and then when we figure out how to actually get back to shooting 17, we may have resumed some conversations about the future. But right now, it's all day, every day. How do we get back to work are the meetings. And you already sort of hinted at this earlier, but we like to end these podcast conversations with the same question, which is, what have you been watching and enjoying the past few weeks, months, <laughs> forever? Uh, I I am so uh, lucky to have so many jobs that I don't have a lot of time to actually watch TV. Um, I I. I had a beautiful kind of hiatus from all the rooms, but only for two weeks because Rebel Room started up sort of right after everything shut down. So I don't have as many answers to that as some of my peers do. But I will say that I discovered Schitt's Creek during the pandemic. And it it really like every day that I threatened to fall into total despair, that show helped me not. Um, I discovered The Good Place during the pandemic, and that was just, I, honestly, I think the best, uh, the best series finale I've ever seen. I admired that so much. And we watched season three of The Crown. I'm just starting I May Destroy You. I just watched the pilot of that. That was tremendous. But I, I, I have three teenagers and three shows. So uh, the thing that falls away, like like I don't listen to podcasts and I I don't get to read a lot of books and I don't get to watch a lot of TV, but I get to be present with the kids and the shows. And <laughs> those are good priorities to have, though. Yeah. So and oh, oh, I will say that the highlight of my pandemic life was Hamilton coming to Disney Plus. That was that was uh, that night. Like we sat and watched it and sang along to the whole thing. Like that was that was joy. That's pure joy. Yeah, I think a lot of people felt that way, too. Well, Krista, thank you so much for for joining us this week. Thank Thank you you so much for having me. It's nice to see you both. Grey's Anatomy and Station 19 will return to ABC sometime. Number five. As usual, we wrap things up with the Critics Corner. Among this week's new major launches are Umbrella Academy returns with its second season on Netflix. Disney Plus debuts Muppets Now. Showtime has its Go-Go's documentary, which personally I'm very excited to watch. And Netflix has Immigration Nation. Dan, what you got? Lots of options. None of the options are perfect. 
but I think that people will find things to watch in the in the next few days. Um, Umbrella Academy is. I don't, you know, it's it's yet another one of those mismatched, dysfunctional superhero team-up shows, and there are a lot of those, and they range from the extremely provocative and excellent Watchmen, which of course comes from a different and established brand, uh, the uneven but interesting Doom Patrol, the uneven but wildly entertaining uh, Legends of Tomorrow, and I guess probably somewhere in that uneven but appealing range of the boys on Amazon. So Umbrella Academy is a show that is frustrating because when it's good, it's fantastic. Every once in a while, and really this is once or twice per episode, there is a, an image or a set piece where I go, man, that was beautifully produced. That was just great TV. And then there's about another 40 minutes where I'm like, yeah, I don't really care about these characters so much. And I really don't want to watch them anymore. And then, ooh, something else cool will happen. I'm like, ah, this is why I love this show. And then back again. The second season, which takes the superheroes to Dallas in the 1960s to avoid yet another apocalypse, is actually much clearer than the first in terms of what its narrative thrust is. And that benefits the show somewhat. But it still doesn't really improve the consistency ratio, which is... Not spectacular. But on the other hand, there's enough good stuff that I understand why people would want to stick with it for the less interesting stuff. And hell, maybe you care about the characters I don't care about. I, I can't say that for sure. Uh, there's a somewhat similar thing happening with Muppets now, which is the latest attempt to fix a thing that was never broken in the Muppets. Uh, in this incarnation, it is closer to a streaming unscripted show with a variety of segments all edited together on a weekly basis by Scooter. That's a thing that's happening. And a lot of it is very fun and entertaining. There's a lifestyle show hosted by Miss Piggy with regular guests Tay Diggs and Linda Cardellini. Uh, Bunsen and Beaker do a scientific exploration show. Uh, Kermit the Frog interviews people. There's a lot of stuff that's really good, but it's odd because I've seen four episodes. Each episode has four sketches in it, and the same sketches are in nearly every episode. There's not nearly enough variety, and there's not nearly enough of a lot of my favorite Muppets. So Fozzie's in only one episode, basically. Gonzo's in like an episode and a half. Statler and Waldorf are in one episode and they're not funny. Uh, Rolf is nowhere to be found at all. What happened to Rolf the dog, Henson Company? Come on, guys. So there's a lot of stuff like that. Um, and it, But it's still utterly charming at times. It, it just a lot of sameness sets in much faster than it should. Little perplexing. But anyway, that's Disney Plus and that's uh, Muppets Now. I, I, You know, Immigration Nation on Netflix is, of all the things coming in the next week, it is the most important thing you could watch. It is a nuts and bolts six episode deconstruction of the immigration system in America and why it is so fucked up. And it is persuasive and infuriating, and it will have you yelling at the TV, and every one of the six episodes is over an hour, and it's over an hour of people sobbing about being separated from their children at the border, of immigration attorneys pounding their heads against the wall about a system which is in no way meant to actually encourage people to do anything legally, of ICE officers making callous and cavalier jokes about the people they're kicking out of the country, it will make you yell at the screen. It will make you miserable. 
so that's my recommendation for that one is it's the show you probably should be watching. It premieres Monday on Netflix, but I completely understand why you may well feel it's not a show you actually want to be watching. But, you know, sometimes you sometimes you got to eat your kale, kids. And, and this is one that is is nutritious and meaningful. And it's also occasionally inspiring and exciting and emotional in a way that's satisfying, but it also will leave you at the end of it going, yeah, th this is horrible and I don't know what to do with any of it. So, hey, if you're looking to feel disconsolate, Immigration Nation on Netflix. Thumbs up. Have you watched the GoGo's documentary yet, Dan? I have not. I, I heard good things about it out of Sundance, but I believe we reviewed it out of Sundance and thus it was not on my reviewing plate and thus I have not had the time to get to it. But I, I am definitely curious, though I am willing to wager I was not as big a Go-Go's fan as a child as you were. I 100% was like <laughs> totally Valley Girl. I loved the Go-Go's. I've probably seen them more in concert than almost anyone else in my lifetime. So is that true? How many times that. have you seen the Go-Go's in concert? Probably 10 or 15. Maybe Good I, I see them every time they come through. It's a it's a fun show, Dan. It's uh, always no. fun. I am I am not in any way saying that I doubt the fun of it or the excitement. I'm just saying this was a thing I did not know about you. And now I do. And now the listeners do, too. Go-Go's, Duran Duran, Brandy Carlile, U2, probably the, my most attended concerts. So anyway, uh, enough about that. That feels like a good place to wrap things up. Thank you for listening to TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. For more of Dan's weekly recommendation and not mine, be sure to subscribe to THR's Now See This newsletter. We will be back next week. Until then, be sure to subscribe on all of your various podcasting platforms. If you like us, rate us. If you really like us, write a little reviewy thing. It helps spread the word of mouth. You can always come say hi to us on Twitter. We like hearing from you. We like your questions, comments, and concerns. But if you want to hear a question read on a future podcast, we're not paying attention to that on Twitter. So you should email us at TV's Top 5 at THR.com. That's TV's Top 5, the number 5, at THR.com. Until next week, Leslie. Until next week, Dan. And free Joe Kelly! Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Judy was boring. Hello. Then, Judy discovered chumpacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now, Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.